Hi, I'm Laura Stewart from the Reading League, and welcome to Teaching, Reading, and Learning, the TRL podcast. The focus of this podcast is to elevate important conversations in the educational community in order to inspire, inform, and celebrate teaching and learning. When we think about informing and inspiring, no one characterizes that more deeply than our inaugural guest, Dr. Louisa Motes. I'm guessing everyone listening would characterize Louisa as one of the tireless trailblazers in our field. She has certainly touched my life in very profound ways, and I'm sure she has for many of you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Dr. Louisa Motes. So I am beyond thrilled to welcome our guest today, Dr. Louisa Motes. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and I just want to start out by reading your bio for the, um, the few people who may not know you. So um, Dr. Motes is, has been a teacher, psychologist, researcher, graduate school faculty member, and author of many influential scientific journal articles, books, and policy papers on the topics of reading, spelling, language, and teacher preparation. After a first job as a neuropsychology technician, and we'll have to talk about that today, uh, she became a teacher of students with learning and reading difficulties, earning her master's degree at Peabody College of Vanderbilt. Later, after realizing how little she understood about teaching, she earned a doctorate in reading and human development from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Dr. Boats spent the next 15 years in private practice as a licensed psychologist in Vermont, specializing in evaluation and consultation with individuals of all ages and walks of life who experienced reading, writing, and language difficulties. At that time, she trained psychology interns in the Dartmouth Medical School of Psychiatry. Dr. Motes spent one year as a resident expert for the California Reading Initiative, four years as site director of the NICHD Early Interventions Project in Washington, D.C., and 10 years as research advisor and consultant with SOPRIS Learning. Dr. Mose was a contributing writer of the Common Core State Standards. In addition to the Letters Professional Development Series, Dr. Mose's books include Speech to Print, Language Essentials for Teachers, Spelling, Development, Disability, and Instruction, Straight Talk About Reading with Susan Hall, and Basic Facts About Dyslexia. So again, thank you for being with us today. Um, you know, you are our first guest on the TRL podcast. And our membership, when we, when we surveyed our membership, they just overwhelmingly uh, wanted to hear from you, Louisa. So thank you. And you're joining us from your home in Idaho. Yes. All right, yes. So um, one of the things that, that struck me and many of us who've been, as I said before, profoundly influenced and inspired by your work is maybe we want to hear kind of what influenced and inspired you. So maybe we'll kind of go back to the beginning and, and hear about your kind of your, your origin story and some of your big moments. So let's go back to that uh, neuropsychology technician. How did that get started and how did that lead you into teaching? Well, um, I majored in music in college <laughs> and I had no uh, ambition to be a teacher. I actually didn't know what to do. So um, after going to Wellesley, you know, and getting this um, liberal arts degree, I went to secretarial school, <laughs> learned how to type and take shorthand and got a job 
as the secretary in the neuropsychology department. It was the first neuropsychology clinic in Boston. And um, my sister knew the director and that's how I got the job. So after about eight weeks of typing all the reports that were coming from the neuropsychologists, um, my boss said to me, I, I think, I think we need to train you to be a lab technician and that, that we're sort of wasting your potential by having you take shorthand and type reports. So literally he put a white coat on me and several other young women he had recruited for this purpose and turned us into lab technicians. And what that meant was we were trained to give the Halstead Raytan neuropsychological test battery to all of the patients from the neurologists who, who were referred for evaluation. And at first it was just adults, just adults, adults with strokes and head injuries and tumors and, and chronic degenerative conditions. And in the process of doing all of this, I mean, my, my boss was phenomenal because he, he wanted to, to nurture the potential of young women um, as, you know, as, as, as professionals. So uh, then children were coming into the clinic with learning disorders that were unexplained. And uh, usually what happened was, you know, kid, kid were, was referred for not being able to read and write. And then we'd put them through five hours of testing. And then the neuropsychologist would say, well, there's no real evidence for brain damage here. <laughs> I mean, this was 1966 and 67. There wasn't any, you have to remember, there was no such thing as um, uh, an imaging um, uh, science. So no one could look at the brains of these kids or figure out we, the word dyslexia was not used. Um, people who used it were considered to be quacks. I remember that distinctly. Um, there were no schools. I mean, you know, they, they, there, there was nothing. The advantage of being as old as I am is that I can see where we have come since then, and there there were no special education laws. There was nothing. I mean, if you couldn't read and write, you couldn't learn. Uh, you basically flunked out of school uh, or suffered greatly. Um, and so then my boss said, after two years of this, he said, you need to go to graduate school. Peabody College of Vanderbilt has um, has received money to pay the way of uh, the, the first 12 learning disabilities teachers in the United States, and you ought to apply to become one of them. So I did, and they accepted me, and I went to Nashville and went through a master's program um, in which I learned very little that was useful. <laughs> You know, in, in the talk I did for, for the Reading League a couple of years ago, I reminisced about this and um, I, I got out of there with my first job as a learning specialist and was in a state of high anxiety most of the time because I secretly knew that 
I didn't know how to teach. I, you know, I didn't know how to teach the kids who couldn't read. Right. So, so you were, so your, your first, then your job after Vanderbilt was a learning specialist in an elementary school or? Yes. First a public elementary school. And then, um, then I was recruited by, um, a program for, uh, a residential program for kids with severe learning, not just learning disorders, but emotional and behavioral disorders. And they, they made me the curriculum director, but, but that was, um, I mean, I felt like a charlatan in that role uh, because I really didn't know very much. And I think, you know, you asked me about the origin of my work later in my career, which is so focused on professional development for teachers and what teachers need to know. I mean, I went through, I went through years of having kind of uh, titles that actually didn't, you know, job titles and job roles that masqueraded um, for the kind of expertise I would have needed to do the job well. And really there were years of my feeling underprepared, unprepared, in the dark, floundering for information and feeling responsible for things that I really didn't know how to do. But I think I was hired to do these jobs because no one else knew what to do either. And um, at least I was interested, right? And uh, I hate to think of all of those kids that I personally failed at that time. And I think that's um, a lot of my motivation. Well, then, I mean, right after that, I went to California had another job in a, a day treatment program for kids with uh, serious learning and behavioral and emotional problems all combined, usually, you know, severe attention deficit, uh, severe learning disorders. And again, I was the curriculum director and I tested kids and prescribed things. Well, I then began to learn by accident about direct instruction in reading because one of our teachers whom we hired had been through a workshop. This, this was the 1970s, and she had been through a workshop on what is now re known as Reading Mastery and showed me how you teach reading. Um, and uh, it was so eye-opening. Um, but then, you know, I, I sort of went on not knowing anything. Uh, then had then was hired back in Boston as the learning specialist in neuropsychology, <laughs> and at that point, um, uh, my my boss said to me after rehiring me, he said, "Well, you know, this position I've hired you for requires a doctorate, so you have to get a doctorate." And at that point, Harvard was down the street. And I thought, you know, I was really kind of a lame brain at the time, I have to say. Young, you know, not, not very ambitious. And this boss of mine kept sort of kicking me in the rear saying, you have to do this. So I applied to Harvard 
and uh, Jean Shaw was the head of the reading department. And I thought, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I, I'm, I'm very, I, I empathize with people who don't know what they don't know because I, for years I was in that. And then uh, when Harvard admitted me and I started my doctoral program and I had Carol Chomsky as my, who, she became my dissertation advisor, but she was a, obviously an eminent linguist. And she said to me, um, you know, you can't teach reading unless you know this stuff. So that's when I began to really learn something useful. Right. So, so this is, I mean, it's so interesting because when you talk about, you know, feeling like a charlatan, um, I, I just feel like I, we hear that story all the time. I mean, that's kind of my story too. I think so many of us um, and those who started out as, as teachers, I think many times we feel like, well, I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, when you talk about being in California and that's when you actually learn how to teach reading, right? You know, I think about many of us, um, were taught kind of around reading, like things to do around reading, but understanding how children progress as readers and how instruction, you know, can match that progression. That's a big aha, you know, for, for so many of us. Um, and, and I just appreciate that, you know, that, that, we've all kind of gone through this journey and, and how that led you to really be sympathetic to how teachers really require that kind of linguistic preparation because you knew that that was critical for you moving forward in your career. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so how, how far do you think, um, you know, we've come in terms of kind of our educational community is as teachers of reading how far do you think we've come since you know some of your early work well you know the the state of affairs with regard to that is, is very mixed so i would say well in some ways we've we've come a long way uh, in other ways, we are shockingly out of step with what we ought to be doing. So let me clarify. Um, I think there are, uh, okay, let's say, okay, in the, in the realm of research, um, which really picked up speed in around the early 1990s, although it had been ongoing at the Haskins Lab, in particular at Yale University, uh, the early research on the relationship between language processes and learning to read and spell. I mean, that's, to me, that was the, um, you know, the nucleus of the work that now informs what we know, what we should be doing. Um, it picked up speed when the National Institutes of Health invested so much money. Uh, and, and a lot of that was reaction to all the missteps of whole language um, in California and elsewhere. Um, uh, you know, the, the area in which we've made the most progress is our research-based understanding of what goes on when kids learn to read and understanding uh, brain processes, understanding reading development in quite quite a, a specific way, 
um, understanding how uh, the, 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 the threads of the reading rope interact over time in reading developments. I mean, all, all of that science is, is quite well developed. Um, Mark Seidenberg's remarks notwithstanding. <laughs> um, uh, but we have a lot to go on as we think about the students in front of us as we're teaching reading. At the same time, um, your average teacher, you're in a public school classroom, does not act on the basis of that information. And so that unfortunately continues to be true. Um, so we are letting students down uh, and we are not, I mean, look at our national data. Um, you know, we're not on the whole making a dent in our national reading problem in spite of the fact that there are entities like the Reading League, which is having a, a big impact in many circles. Um, we are, we are still, we have a long way to go. Yeah, so, so yes. Yeah, so basically we, we have this body of evidence and it's been robust, it's been with us for quite some time, but what you're saying then is this translation into the classroom, right? So is that, is it a teacher preparation issue? Is, a, is it an in-service issue? Is it both? Um, what are the barriers that, that you think are really keeping us from utilizing that evidence base? Yeah. Well, of course, that's the big question, the most important question, because if we can really get a handle on where the barriers are, then real progress can be made. And, and the answer is that there are many barriers that, that are sort of co-conspirators in maintaining the status quo, perpetuating bad ideas, failing to support teachers and better practices. So. Um, uh, and and not any one of them. Not there's not one culprit. It's a kind of co-conspiracy of um, resistance, and uh, and so so where are the barriers? The barriers are um, in, entrenched ideas in the schools of education that that are changing very slowly. Um, the barriers are the appearance that reading instruction should be pretty simple and straightforward. And so publishers put out these uh, sim simple-minded solutions to reading instruction that people embrace because they have a face validity and intuitive appeal, um, uh, things like leveled books. Um, or, 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 or three queuing systems ideas. A naive person might embrace that kind of stuff because it, it, there's a void there and, and these, the publishers respond to the void with these simplistic solutions coded over with nice slogans. And, um, uh, and th then there's a culture in education which is very hard to 
put your finger on, you know, which is, you know, where's the source of this? It's an embedded culture and education of kind of, quote, humanistic ideals and now social justice ideals that are tied in with um, flaky ideas about how to teach reading. Um, that, you know, if you have, uh, Julie Washington likes to talk about this, if you have a library of books that better represent the social strata and, and racial diversity in our society, and you have kids reading a, from books where the illustrations are, you know, more like what kids really look like, that, that, that's the solution to the problem. Or you have more, um, a lot of energies focused on, well, let's get more teachers who are of diverse uh, racial and economic and experiential backgrounds to match the kids. Well, you know, that begs the question, well, still, how are you going to teach them to read? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you say, those, although those things are very important. But when we think about when we think about you know equitable access to education, you know are we are we ensuring that all of our children have access to high quality um, instruction to teach them to be successful as readers and writers? Isn't that essentially what we're you know what we really are focusing on? And the high quality instruction requires people to be very well informed about several things. One is the structure of the language that they're teaching to kids. You know, that's the missing foundation, as I often say. Um, uh, and another is all the practical skills of implementation. This is complex. And as I have written, you know, teaching really is rocket science, uh, meaning that um, there are no simple-minded solutions that are going to work. You have to be a decision maker. And your decision making has to be informed by knowledge of language, knowledge of individual differences and what causes them, how to think about that, and how to think about your choices as, as an instructor, which you're making all the time when you- You're making all the time. You know, I was, I was sharing with somebody recently how I read this article about how many decisions a teacher makes every day and it's you know over a thousand decisions that a teacher makes every day. And you know how do you discern you know what's kind of the next best step with this child? And if we if we have internalized this body of evidence, and if we understand the linguistic underpinnings of the language, if we're equipped with that, that really becomes you know kind of a gatekeeper for those decisions that we make um, in the classroom. Yeah. So it really comes down to that, doesn't it? You know that. Yes. The, the well-prepared, knowledgeable teacher. Yeah, I'm just thinking of an illustration of this, okay? Because I'm I'm having to, I, I am writing a paper for the World Bank about how to teach reading, and um, so uh, the first thing kids have to know is the alphabet letter names. I think, okay uppercase okay and then so if you're teaching this how do you do it <laughs> and what are kids going to be confused by so as a teacher you have to realize that the confusions can come from several sources confusions can come from the appearance of the letters 
the confusions can come from the similarities in the names of the letters. The confusion can come from the fact that the sounds that the letters represent have confusable properties. So right there, there are three possible sources of confusion. And if you're looking at a kid who is learning the letters, you have and, and they mix things up and they don't get it. Well, what do you think of for you have to think, okay, are they confusing what they look like? Confusing letter names that sound similar? Are they confusing uh, letter name, letter sound relationships? So right there, that seems to be, it should seem to be simple that you're teaching the alphabet, but it's not easy to figure that out, right? That's such a great illustration because it sounds so simple, right? We're teaching the alphabet, but even that requires us to, to teach somewhat diagnostically, right? You know, teach with, the, with these confusions in mind so you know kind of what, what the next thing you need to do. Right, and, and uh, for example, where do you put the letters M and N in that instruction? Okay, there are visual similarities. There are, there are, they both represent nasal sounds, which are confusable. Um, and yet many programs just put those right in there in the first lesson because they're continuance, right? Mm -hmm. So you can blend them in words. And that becomes the priority for the first lesson, the, the property of being a continuance. But, you know, so those are the choices that the program developers should face and make choices about, but the teacher still, no matter what the program developer does, teacher still has to be alert here. Okay, if you're not getting it, where do I go after that confusion? Right, she's the one that's making that next instructional decision, yeah. You know, um, so that and that kind of reminds me of um, you know your um, the latest edition of Speech to Print, um, and that I think is is of course a very groundbreaking book for many of us. Speech to Print. Um, so what what are some things that you've learned since the first edition of Speech to Print? Well, um, uh, I learned more about semantics and syntax, and and really revised those chapters. Um, I, I think the, the field of, of understanding um, the, the structures of sentences um, and, and how linguists, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I am so, my thinking is so elementary compared to great linguists like John McWhorter or someone like that. Um, but when you when you come to teaching when you come into teaching sentence structure to kids it's it's very thorny and um it turns out that the traditional grammar that that i was taught in school has only very limited uh usefulness um and there are other ways to think about sentence structure and uh, uh so my my thinking my thinking i think advanced some along those lines when i did the third edition put more emphasis on the role 
of the verb in a sentence uh, as the director of everything else that happens in the sentence. Um, and, and I wrote more about that and wrote more about a functional approach to teaching syntactic awareness where you emphasize in the dialogue with kids and, and the exercises they do what the words are doing in the sentence rather than what their formal grammatical description is because words play many different roles in a sentence so there's a lot more emphasis in that yeah so it's a lot like the, about the, the function what's the what's the function the yeah what is it what are these words doing how do they work together what words do the other words do they work with to convey basic ideas about the relationships between the entities in the sentence. So, and, and, but a lot of people don't even get to that chapter. <laughs> so as far as the chapters on, on phonology and orthography, I think um, that that's kind of the meat of the book and that the chapters that are most used probably in the book. Um, but I guess uh, um, I've been, uh, I find that the research confirms and elaborates what we need to know about phonological processing and particularly phoneme awareness. And while we've been talking about phoneme aware awareness for decades, they, it is shocking to me that your average teacher out there in kindergarten or first grade does not have a basic understanding of what they did. Um, so I tried to do a better job explaining the relationship between phoneme awareness and learning to read and spell. Uh, there's been much more confirmation of those relationships and why they're important. Yeah. Um, well, and I think, you know, one, one thing I, re I really appreciate about your work is that as you, um, as you present this information to a teacher, I think you're always helping her make that connection between this information. Why do I need to know this, right? Like, why is it important for me to have, to understand phoneme awareness, right? And I think that, I think I really appreciate that. Um, and I wonder if that goes all the way back to what you were talking about earlier when you kind of first started out and you thought to yourself, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I, I recently um, heard you speak. I think it was, I was watching a webinar that you did and uh, you mentioned that you have your typical song and dance. I think that was a phrase you used. This is my typical song and dance. Um, the fact that teacher knowledge is critical, right? And I just think that's, that's underscored all your work. And is that, is that really what led you to letters, development of letters? Uh, yes. You know, I had written the first edition of Speech to Print uh, in the late 1990s, and it was published in 2000. And at the time I was working in Washington as the site director of this big NIH project in the high poverty, mostly um, African-American schools in Washington. And um, uh, <laughs> partly out of just stubbornness, <laughs> naivete, <laughs> I, I, in my work with, with the teachers there, I just kind of insisted that they learn these things that ended up in the first edition of Speech to Print. And it was kind of an unlikely uh, 
site for such an experiment. But you know, the first professional development days we had in 1997, I started teaching them about phoneme awareness. Imagine, you know, these are teachers, career teachers in the DC schools schlepping into a workshop on a hot August day in a room with no air conditioning, wondering who the heck this white lady from who is this person? Yeah, was who was standing up in front of them, um, trying to teach them about phoneme awareness. But because of my, you know, I just sort of marched in there thinking they need to know about this research. They actually were wonderful students and realized right away as they were implementing open court, most of them, and, and also the, the Houghton Mifflin program at the time, realized this was working. Right away as they started to do these activities and started teaching, they would say, my kids are learning how to read. These are the kindergarten and first grade teachers. My kids are learning. And so we, we over years, uh, formed a great partnership and they were very receptive to the knowledge base, implemented it very skillfully. Mm -hmm. And saw the results, right? And we saw the results. These kids went from the 17th percentile on average to the 48th percentile on average by the end of third and fourth grade. And it worked. It worked. So, so I, I think a lot of our listeners may not know um, about that NICHD project. So can you give us a little more background on that? I think they'd be interested to hear that. Um, well, um, um, the University of Texas and Barbara Foreman and Jack Fletcher um, had been recipients of major NIH research grants in Texas, and they had proposed an implementation study basically to show that what they had already learned from an implementation study in Houston uh, uh, could be um, could be shown to to be effective in in high poverty schools. And Congress at that time was very interested in scaling up what was known from existing NIH research uh, to, to more um, high-risk populations. So that's where I came in. Uh, Barbara Foreman had proposed uh, to the NIH that they do a joint project between Houston and Washington, D.C., and talked me into being the site director in Washington, D.C., and then the project was funded. It was a $10 million research project over uh, five years, actually. It took five years to get all the data, and, and, uh, and what we had to show was that if we taught the teachers what to do, we provided coaching in the classrooms, we provided instructional materials, and we provided assessment uh, support that these high-risk kids who are, you know, for years very low performing uh, could, in fact, be taught how to read and the teachers could be taught what to do. And that's what we did. Um, so I was down the street from Congress. I testified to Congress three times uh, in my years there around uh, professional development, teacher training. And so part of what what we provided was the impetus for the funding for the National Reading Panel Report, 
which, and, and the work of the National Reading Panel, which began in 1998 and went on, you know, through 2000. So I got to go and, and watch them at work several times. Um, was... mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was, you know, that was, that was, in my estimation, a really exciting time, right? During the National Reading Panel years and subsequent um, Reading First years. That was a that was a pretty watershed moment when I think about myself as a teacher coming up. Um, I came up as a whole language teacher, so you know, really at that point in time, knowing that there was an evidence base and you know, understanding more deeply the foundational skills, that was a you know, that was a moment. That really was a moment. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are, twenty years later. I know. Yeah. So so um. So when you think about the, some of that early work and you think about the development of letters, why do you think your work has struck such a deep chord with so many of us? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm very gratified that it has. And along the way, I've constantly been surprised um, at the extent to which that seems to be true. And I think, I think it's the power of the information. I mean, I think it's the combination of the fact that I stumbled on the information. You know, I was, again, you know, kicked into situations where I had to learn the information that in fact really opened these doors to what was going to be effective. And I, I think it's that um, the information itself has such power once and I, rem I remember going through this myself and then when I started to teach teachers what I wanted them to know and then there's a whole story behind that I mean how, how you know I just started teaching institutes in Vermont out of frustration that so many teachers didn't hadn't had the opportunity to learn what I learned at Harvard and and um uh, had discovered was really the, the kind of key to teaching, to, to helping the kids who weren't getting it through osmosis, right? Um, I, uh, well, I, 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 think, I think that once, once teachers have some insight into the speech to print relationship, and they start seeing what's going on and, and we can show them what the spelling errors are telling us and, and what the reading mistakes are telling us about the learning process. It's so exciting. It's so exciting to finally feel empowered. I totally agree. I, I really think, yes. I, I mean, information was, we're just a conduit of this information that itself is empowering. It is so empowering when I think about, um, you know, I do think teachers who, um, who've been brought up, you know, in a more, I guess you would say, uh, you know, um, holistic methodology, you know, where we kind of immerse children in print and let them explore and, you know, try to intuit how all of this works. I think a lot of us um, have this disquiet. We just have this disquiet about that. You know, it's, it's like, okay, well, this is what we are doing. This is how I was taught to teach reading, but I have this disquiet because I don't know what's going on. And like you said, when, when we're availed to that information, it's like, oh yeah, this was the missing piece. This is what I didn't know. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting, Louisa, while you're, while you're telling that little story, oh, a bright shining light is coming from behind you. <laughs> oh, sun uh, to the east of my house there's no way i can shut that down exactly so um so what what is the what is the question you get most often about your work or questions you get most often about your work well the question over and over again is why didn't anybody teach me these things before yeah Mm -hmm. you know it's it's so common now that i i'm 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 trying to re- release responsibility for a lot of the work in letters to now, you know, dozens of colleagues who are wonderful and persisting through the COVID age and everything, helping people learn the information through letters and through using speech to print and um, over and over and over they funnel this back to me. You know what people say? They say, why didn't anybody teach me this before? And and that there's a kind of grieving process that teachers share. I mean, I did that, I still do that. I think about all those kids I didn't help and I was, it was my job to help them. And I, I wasn't empowered for, for so many years. Um, that, that sense that, you know, regret. Yeah. Yeah. I just appreciate that so much. I appreciate that you say there's a grieving process. I agree with that. I mean, we as teachers, you know, that's what's in teachers' hearts, right? Is to is to do right by our students. And and the grief that comes with saying, oh my gosh, I could have, right? Or um, but then I also I love the way you use the I love the way you keep coming back to empowerment. You know, knowledge is power and you know, and empowering, you know, having this base of knowledge from which to choose practice. That is a very empowering thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, our, our slogan, um, you have to be smarter than your program. Um, I think teachers f- know that they are smart when they know these things. They can explain language to kids. They can make choices that are going to be but in, in, for problem solving, they, they are confident. They, they, they can forge a path through this, this struggle of learning to read for so many kids. Um, and that makes them feel efficacious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of feels like you've, um, you've shown teachers what's behind the curtain or what's behind the veil so that teachers can show kids what's behind the curtain. You know, I always, I think back about my first year's teaching, and again, we taught around reading. <laughs> we, we didn't really teach, you know, it was kind of like this mystery that we wanted kids to somehow discover, you know, right? And let's demystify this. Let's demystify this for ourselves as teachers so we can demystify it for kids. That's such a great gift you've given us, really. Such a great gift. Yeah. So, so what, um, what do you think is kind of left to do? You know, I know you, you identified, you know, some of the obstacles, the entrenched, um, maybe schools of education, publishers, some cultural issues, you know, kind of what, what is on the horizon? And maybe this is a reflection of what's on the horizon for you in, in your, in your next chapter 
What's left to do? Well, there's sort of two things I think about. Um, one is uh, on the research frontier. <clears throat> um, well, well, you know, Mark Seidenberg is a real inspiration and guiding light, I think, for all of us. He's so brilliant, and his book is so brilliant on, on language at the speed of sight. He's the ultimate skeptic. So just when I'm feeling pretty good about all that we know, <clears throat> he comes back and says, well, you know, we just don't know that much about how to teach. And I think, well, that's a little harsh because we know a lot about how to teach. Uh, but I think what he's getting at is there's so many um, other questions that can be addressed with more refinements in research that would bolster our case. So uh, that research is very hard to do because when you start researching the process of learning how to read, there are so many variables that you have to account for in order to sort of put your finger on the on one thing. Um, but nevertheless, we chip away at it. And I'm thinking of Linnea Erie's work as just the most outstanding example of how to chip away at the, the little things that add up and her evidence that at a certain stage, it really is helpful to teach kids about the articulation of speech sounds. And it really is helpful to do connected blending of sounds at a certain stage of development and, and those things that she is working on now. So we have, uh, and those are, you know, those, those are just about word recognition, all the, all the other things about the relationship between background knowledge, understanding of language. Um, you know, is, is it really purposeful to teach kids about connectives in, in 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 academic text and how do you do that and which ones and so on those sorts of things we we have farther to go so i'm i'm hopeful but in saying that i i would go back to saying we know a heck of a lot about how to do this well and then the other frontier is how in the heck to ensure that teachers know not only know what they need to know, but that they're supported in the workplace in practicing. And as uh, my colleagues who are doing a great job in schools of education are saying to me, you know, the most frustrating thing is we do a good job here at X university. And I know they do, but when they go out and they're not supported in practicing what we've taught them, that is so frustrating. So, the whole field has to move forward together. Administrators have to know this. State department leaders have to know. Um, and, and of course, Mississippi is a good example of a state where all of the stakeholders have together progressed in their knowledge base and their willingness to pull all the levers that influence what goes on in the classroom and have seen the results of that, positive results. So do you think that, for example, by the work of Emily Hanford in, in you know, continuing to raise consciousness about all of this and magnifying, you know, elevating stories like Mississippi, um, do you think that we're, we're making headway 
on a national level in terms of our? Um, we are in a, a few states for sure. Um, and I see state departments across the country, many of them, not all, um, struggling to uh, kind of um, emulate uh, the stronger initiatives, but it's slow going. I mean, you have, when you have resistance and, and, and resistance, you know, against having a teacher knowledge test in California, I mean, fortunately, that didn't go anywhere, but it took a huge effort from, you know, stakeholders to say, don't get rid of a teacher knowledge test about reading, <laughs> really. Uh, um, but uh, across the country, for example, Massachusetts has just reorganized its guidelines for the better. Um, so we have various states in various, uh, you know, pockets, essentially. Yeah. Who, who are pushing better ideas and their implementation. But you know, what's behind all this too, I think is that intrinsically, it is hard to understand what goes on as kids learn to read. The nature of the information is, as I've been saying a long time, it appears as if it should be simple because it's just kindergarten and first grade stuff, and it is not. So, you know, that's a paradox. There's the rocket science right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, a couple things that I just, I kind of keep coming back to as we're, as we're talking about this, and one, it's that engagement of all stakeholders. You know, um, we've talked about schools and administrators and teacher preparation programs and publishers and you know parents it seems like parents have, have really become quite a strong voice in enacting change and enacting um you know kind of mobilizing people especially around students who struggle around their own students who might be struggling and then the other thing i think about is um this all is, is pretty relentless work would you say? Relentless. And uh, um, it's hard and you have to keep at it. And um, it, the, the pace of change is so much slower than we want. But then, you know, again, as I look back 50 years, I, I from where I started, I do see progress. It's just that... Um, it takes a lot longer than any of us would wish. Exactly. So, so what are what are the what are the hopes that you have um, looking forward for the work that you've done? What are, what are the hopes that you have? Well, okay, here's a concrete one. When my three-year-old grandchild enters public school in a couple of years, that. The teacher knows how to teach her to read. I mean, I'm really worried about it. Um, I want every teacher to be empowered with knowledge that's going to, you know, do all the things we've just talked about. That's that's my hope for the future. Yeah. 
I know. I love it. So, so what are you working on now, Louisa? Well, I'm working on this World Bank project. Right, right. Yes. I took this on uh, because I found it challenging. I'm supposed to write a kind of series of guidelines about not only how to teach reading in English in 30 pages um, for third world countries and other places where they want kids to learn English as the language of commerce and um, higher education. Um, uh, which is challenging, but also um, I have to consider what, if there are any universals about teaching reading in, in any language. And that, you know, I have to kind of be considerate of that especially in the introduction. So um, it's a learning process for me. What can I say um, about uh, a student in Africa should also learn to read in their first language? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm right in the middle of it. Oh, this sounds really interesting. It sounds right up your alley. I mean, what a, what a great way for you to kind of you know, be able to encapsulate all your learning and really apply it in this direction. That sounds wonderful. Well, yes, but I have no direct experience in Kenya. So I'm talking with people who do work across the world. And that's enlightening. That's exciting too, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, best of luck with that. Thank you. So, um, so before we go, um, I do want to ask you some kind of ending questions that we're going to be asking all of our guests on our podcast. So um, the first of those is, who was your favorite teacher growing up and why? Oh, gee, that's great. Or, or uh, one, one of your favorites. Yeah, I think of my English teacher in eighth grade, Mrs. Hunter. I remember her. She was rigorous. She was demanding. And she did what, to me, is a model for for teaching kids really at any level she combined the um close reading of great literature and what stands out for me is we read the odyssey word by word in eighth grade with her guidance um as she combined that with really good teaching and how to write a sentence and how to write a paragraph and how to how to the the, the tools of good language use um so i'm grateful to her i think i learned something about writing in eighth grade because of her and i learned something about close reading of complex text that stayed with me for life wow thank you mrs hunter for that yeah, thank you, Mrs. Hunter. Um, so name a favorite book, either as a child or as an adult. Oh my, so many. Uh, okay, a favorite book. Okay, let's see. One that stands out, okay, The Help. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I have many favorite books, but The Help, um, because it, it's it's kind of a, the author has kind of disappeared from view. Elizabeth, whatever her last name was, what she captured was 
the dialogue of a culture, the dialogue of several cultures that uh, was, was so well written. And I remember her also, um, you know the story because it was made into a movie and all. She came to the Sun Valley Writers Conference and gave this most amusing lecture uh, to, to us, the audience, about her own experience growing up in Jackson, Mississippi with her African-American maid and who was an inspiration for a lot of what went on in this story and also her personal education uh, in a, I guess, a religious school in Jackson, Mississippi. And she said where they, they denied evolution science. And then she said, oh, she said, I, imagine my shock when I went to the Smithsonian Institution on a tour and saw and, and discovered the dinosaurs, she said, <laughs> because no one had ever taught me about that. I mean, she, she was funny, she was insightful, and she had this, as a writer, as a new writer, this mastery of dialogue and the use of language to, to make her characters come alive and all that has stayed with me. Oh, how wonderful. So the book itself, but then also just the, the author and her story. And All right, um, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I'm reading about the Hemings of Monticello. I'm reading uh, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed's marvelous, incredible history that was buried for 150 years. I mean, I have such, since my experience in Washington, I'm always drawn to the stories of the, of, of you know, the legacy of slavery in the African-American community and where we are now in understanding our, our current national uh, issues. So the Hemings of Monticello, uh, you know, this woman, Sally Hemings, who was Thomas Jefferson's erstwhile slave wife who had five or six children with him, whom he, of course, could never formally acknowledge the paternity of, um, and all this brought to light um, in the 21st century. An amazing book, an amazing story. Um, so that's it. Wonderful, good to know. Um, so, Lisa, what do you have on your desk that symbolizes you or is very dear to you? <laughs> Let's see, what do I have on my desk? Um, uh, all right, hold on. I put it, uh, put it away, so. <laughs> all right. This person, I don't know if you can see my grandchild now. And I have another one coming. Oh, and what, what is her name again? Nell Nyman. I love it. Yeah. Um, now three, and I spent time with her, and she is uh, fascinating. <laughs> this is kidding me. Giving me appreciation language development. Oh, and isn't it amazing how your perspective with a grandchild is so different than your own children? I mean, you know, as we're watching our own children grow, we marvel at that. But we're also thinking about all the stuff we have to do. 
<laughs> with our grandkids. We're just marveling at them. Yeah, exactly. I can just revel in, you know, being with her. Oh, how wonderful. That's great. Um, and last question, what are your greatest hopes for today's children? Oh, gosh, that this country goes through a renaissance of concern uh, for children as our future um, and that we as a society make a greater commitment to the importance of nurturing kids in every way. Mm -hmm. What a wonderful, yeah, yeah. What a wonderful aspiration for all of us. Well, thank you so much for this. You know, I mentioned that, you know, you've touched me in profound ways and, and you're always so humble and you're always so gracious. So thank you for being with us today and, and thank you for your wisdom and, uh, and thank you for the work you've put out into the world. Well, thank you, Laura, and thank you for all the work that you're doing with the Reading League. That's, you know, one of the great, um, uh, spheres of activity that is, is adding to my sense of hope for the future. I love everything that's going on. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, there's, there's work to be done, right? Onward and upward. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Louisa. All right. All right. Thank you, Laura. Bye-bye. Bye. I am so grateful that we were able to talk with Louisa Motes today. What a gift. And thank you for tuning in and listening. You know, we at the Reading League are committed to bringing you important conversations like this. And we're also committed to bringing you lots of great resources to support you on your journey. So if you haven't had a chance to check us out, please do at www.thereadingleague.org. Uh, check out our mission, our knowledge base page, our YouTube channel. We've got lots of great resources for you. And we encourage you to join us. Please become a member. And also please join our Facebook community so you can share your journey with fellow educators. So once again, thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next time.